Thank you, Jeremy. There's a little, yeah, a little preaching outline there, a little sermon notes card. Don't get used to that. <laughs> I am not a big fan of, of little fill-in-the-blank sermon notes. I thought for today it, it works well, and uh, some of the things that we're covering, I thought it worked well to, to provide that for you. And so make sure you have one of those. Uh, or if you don't want one of those, if you don't like them either, then that's okay. You can just sit and listen, take your own notes. By God's good providence, we have come to a passage of Scripture today, very timely for what's going on here at Trinity Church. Tonight at our members' meeting, we will affirm, Lord willing, an elder uh, to join with Jeremy and myself as we lead uh, Trinity, and we will also appoint three men uh, to be deacons. And so tonight at our members' meeting, you don't want to miss that and be there uh, for that. So we look forward to that. And, and again, by God's good providence, providence, we come to a place in Acts where um, we are given instruction as to what these men, these deacons, this leadership in a church looks like. If you join with me in standing for the reading of God's Word, Acts chapter 6, Acts chapter 6, starting in verse 1, and we'll read through verse 7. Acts 6, starting verse 1 through verse 7. Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Procurus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase. And the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. It's been a while since we've been in Acts. We celebrate the Advent season together, observe the Advent season together, and, and the new year with charges for us over the last couple of weeks as we look into the new year. So it's been a while since we've been to the book of, in the book of Acts. You remember what's taken place to this point. Jesus appears to his disciples after his resurrection and spends 40 days with them, speaking to them of the kingdom of God. And then he leads them up to the top of the Mount of Olives, and it's there that his disciples ask him a very important question. They say, Jesus, 
Is it at this time that you will restore the kingdom to Israel? Jesus says, it's not for you to know the times or the seasons appointed by the Father. But go and wait for the promise of the Father, and you will receive power when the Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the world. Jesus then ascends to the Father, and they watch him going, and there's two men there that say, why are you looking up into the sky? Go and do what he's told you to do. He's going to come back just as he went away. He's going to come back. Be busy about what he told you to be doing. So sure enough, they go and wait. For 10 days, they wait. While they're waiting, they appoint another disciple to join with them. Judas has betrayed Jesus, and so he is rejected. He dies, and there is a new disciple to give 12 apostles. This is important for our text today. Because with the 12 apostles, what's being signaled is that God's people have new leadership. The apostles are the new leadership for God's new covenant people. Where there were 12 tribes of Israel, now there are 12 apostles for God's people. And then the Spirit is poured out. The Spirit is poured out upon the disciples And they begin speaking in tongues not previously known, proclaiming the truths of Jesus, signaling that the kingdom has begun to break in. And many people hear the disciples, the Apostle Peter stands up and he proclaims a simple message, Jesus is the king that you have been waiting for. The kingdom that you've been anticipating, the kingdom where God's rule is accomplished upon the earth through his king, through his appointed king, it has come. Jesus is the king. And he came and you killed him. But God raised him. The one you killed, God has raised from the dead and he is both Lord and Christ. And the people listening that day cry out, to Peter, what shall we do? We see our guilt. We see that Jesus is Lord in Christ. We see what we've done. What should we do? And Peter tells them to repent. Turn from your sin. Turn from your rejection of Jesus and put your faith in Christ and be identified with him by baptism today. And that day, thousands of people come to repentance and faith in Christ and the church begins this church then begins to live this community of christ this new people begins to live in unity and power god moves mightily in the midst of those people to proclaim his message peter and john go into the temple Enjoying this unity, enjoying this power, and they meet a lame man. They heal a lame man at the entrance to the temple, signaling, picturing, symbolizing the restoration that is for Israel if they will trust in Jesus. As they're going to the temple, they heal this man, and this causes quite a stir. And the leadership, the leadership of Israel, the high priesthood, instead of seeing what is 
being done and receiving Christ as king, the leadership of Israel rejects the message. Do you remember? There's an inquisition. There's a council where they try Peter and John and they command Peter and John to no longer preach in the name of Jesus. And Peter and John say what? We cannot help but speak of what we have seen and heard. So there is unity in the church, there is power in the church, and yet there is also opposition. First, the opposition comes from outside, from the leadership of Israel itself. They are opposing this message of Jesus as Lord and Christ. But the people unify together and they continue They refuse to be detoured by threats. They continue in boldness. Then opposition comes from within. Do you remember this in Acts chapter 5? This unity, this power is attacked again, but now from within the sin of Ananias and Sapphira, who want reputation and yet they still love their possessions And we see in that chapter, the opposition from within is deadly. The opposition from without will demand courage from God's people and boldness. But the opposition from within comes from within our own hearts as we seek to exalt ourselves in the sight of other people. And we seek to hold on to what we have materially speaking. All of us are in danger of being the opposition to the preaching of the gospel. And then we see another opposition come again from outside. The high priesthood again opposes. They arrest all of the apostles and God sets them free and they continue speaking and preaching in the temple the good news of Jesus Christ. That is the summary, quick summary of the book of Acts so far. And now we come to chapter 6. And in chapter 6, it's kind of like a back and forth. You see external opposition, internal opposition, external opposition again in chapter 5. And now we come to chapter 6, and guess what we have? We have another opposition And this one is from within again. The opposition to the preaching of God's word comes again from within the community of Christ. Verse 1 of chapter 6 says, Now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, again enjoying that unity and power, a complaint by the Hellenists arose. We see first that there is a serious threat here to the preaching of God's word. A complaint that arises from within the community. And this is a serious threat that serves to expose an issue of partiality between two groups of people, partiality between Hellenistic Jews, that is Greek-speaking Jews, and Hebrews. 
or hometown Jews. At Pentecost, you had people coming from all over, Jews from Greek-speaking nations that came in to observe Pentecost. That's where Peter preached the gospel. And they heard it in their own language, and they came to faith in Christ. And they decided to stay, many of them staying, to continue being a part of this community, this new community. So they make up the Hellenistic Jews, the Greek-speaking Jews, those from outside, those that aren't from here or from around here. And they have a complaint against the Hebrews, those who do call Jerusalem their home. And here is the issue. It says that the Hellenists and their widows are being neglected. The widows of the Hellenists are being neglected in the daily distribution. So, very practical situation going on here. Very, very logistical in its nature. The daily distribution is the handing out of food. So they're living in unity together. They're bringing all that they have and they're distributing it as any as have need. And as they're distributing the food, the Hellenists, the widows of the Hellenists, are being neglected. The Hebrews and their widows are being fed. There's partiality going on involving the care of widows. But there's something, there's something here very serious in the book of Acts. What's happening here is a test for the new leadership of God's people. A test. Will this new leadership prove its legitimacy as the leadership for God's people? Will the leadership of God's new people prove itself to be legitimate? Do you remember the leaders of the old covenant people? They failed in these ways. They failed to take care of the least. They failed to take care of the widows. In fact, they were known for taking advantage of the widows. And those that were least among the people of God. So here we have a serious threat. One that will test the legitimacy of the new leadership. One that could serve to blow up and destroy the work of God going on here in the book of Acts. But I've got to stop right here and ask a, a question. And this, this is important for all of us. It's extremely important for all of us to ask this question of our own hearts. What is our complaint? It says here a complaint arose. Let me tell you this. When you get a group of people together, it will be great initially But if you spend any time together, complaints are a fact of life. It's not if, it's when. So let me ask you a question very seriously. What's your complaint 
I'll be honest with you, I am someone who finds a lot of reasons to complain. God's people have always been that way. Remember the people that came out of the Exodus from Egypt? What did they do as they were living living in the immediate uh, salvation that God had won for them? As they were leaving Egypt, they started to complain. And it is the same for God's new covenant people. There are complaints. So what, what is the nature of your complaint? Now, there are some complaints that arise out of self-centeredness and selfishness. This is extremely important for us to, to, to think about for our own lives. Some complaints arise out of selfishness and self-centeredness. I'm not getting my way. I think things should be this way. I, I don't feel loved. I don't feel served. I don't feel seen. Some complaints just come from self-centeredness. This is why we built a liturgy today around this desire of looking, again, looking to Jesus, having our vision upon Christ. You see, when we're looking at Jesus, complaints dissolve. Because everything we need has been provided in Christ. Our complaining is actually us doubting what Jesus has provided for us. Many of our complaints come from a heart of self-seeking, and self-ambition, and self-centeredness. However, there are some complaints that arise that are legitimate. I, I don't know what the nature of the complaint here is in Acts, Acts chapter 6. In fact, it doesn't tell us whether this was a sinful situation, whether they were neglecting the Hellenistic widows on purpose or not. It doesn't tell us that. But what we know is that the complaint arose. The complaint came out. There's something happening that needs to be remedied here. And there are some complaints that are legitimate. When you have a group of people that get together, logistical needs have to be met. Practical needs, physical needs, administrative needs have to be met. And these complaints can be legitimate I want to ask you, what is your complaint, first of all? But second of all, where do you take your complaint? This this question is just as important as the first. What is your complaint? But then second of all, where do you take your complaint? I was told a long time ago that complaining is okay as long as you take your complaint to someone who can actually fix the problem. But most of our complaining is given to those who can't do anything about it. And that helps us see the nature of our complaint. I, I, I don't want to have a pity party in front of you. I'm going to resist that. In fact, this whole message, I'm resisting having a pity party for myself. Uh, as I've been walking through this, just thinking about all the logistical needs of a church and all the administrative needs of a church and all that has to go on in a church. But do you know something? It breaks my heart. It breaks my heart when I hear of something, a complaint, 
And it seems that everybody in that person's life knows all about their complaint, and I'm the last one to find out. That's, that's, that's remarkable. But that's what happens often. People have complaints, people have concerns, people have worries, people have things that they think need to be fixed, and I am the last person to usually find out about that. Or the leadership finds out only after the fact. What is your complaint, and where do you take that complaint? And that's what this passage focuses on, this serious threat, this complaint that is brought up. And that leads us then to what the apostles do. The apostles come up with a spirit-filled solution. A spirit-filled solution. Look at it there in verse number 2. So they hear about this complaint, and the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. So here's what the apostles do. The apostles first convene a members meeting. Now, I'm taking a little bit of liberty there. It's not called a members meeting, but that's actually what it was. Do you see that? They called together the full number of the disciples, which implies they knew who the disciples were. They knew the number, and it's the entire number. Have you ever heard somebody say, well, you know, they never, in the book of Acts, there were so many of them, they couldn't really meet all together, and so they had to meet in house churches, and so that's Read the scripture here. They got all of them together, which tells you how important this issue was. The apostles realized the urgency of the situation. They get all of the disciples, the full number of them together in one place. And as they convene this meeting, the apostles communicate here the threat of competing needs. Look, look at what they say. When they summon all of the disciples together, they say, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Now, this this is a very important statement by the apostles. There's There's two issues here for the apostles. There is the ministry of the word, preaching the word, and there is this issue of serving the tables and distributing the food. And both of these are important. However, look at what they say. It is not right. It's not fitting. It's not proper. It's not appropriate that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Now, are they, are, they, are they too good to serve tables? That's maybe how you, you might read that. Are they too good to serve tables? Is it beneath them to serve tables? When we think of serving tables, what do you think of? When we hear that phrase, serving tables, we think of somebody with a little apron around their waist, walking around taking orders, right? The food industry when we think of, of totem pole of careers, right? The food industry, the service industry, that's on the, that's on the low end, serving tables. 
Maybe that's what the apostles are saying, is that this is beneath them. But in fact, that's not what they're saying. What they, what they are saying is this. The preaching of the word is the priority. The preaching of the word is the priority. They are prioritizing the word over physical and practical concerns. They're prioritizing the word and the preaching of the word. The preaching of the good news of Jesus as Lord and Christ. They can't lay that down. It's not right to lay that down. It's not right to neglect that. We've got to keep preaching the word. And yet, there's a real need here. And if we don't meet this need, it will undermine the preaching of the word. So in order to prioritize the word, something has got to happen. They prioritize the word over physical and practical concerns, but at the same time, they are treating the practical concerns seriously. This is why they've gotten everybody together. What are we going to do? There's, there's two sides here. Now, I think this is, this is helpful for us because this is often how we, we think about church work and ministry. There's the preaching of the word and then there's all these practical and physical and logistical and administrative needs and we got to choose one or the other. Choose one or the other. And yet, they're not against each other. We've got to do the administrative things. We've got to do the logistical things. We've got to do these things if we're going to continue preaching the word. Someone who emphasizes the word but neglects the administrative needs, they're just, they're just cutting their feet out from underneath them. And yet somebody who emphasizes the practical, physical concerns against the preaching of the word becomes dead unhealthy spiritually so what do we do and this this is their solution the apostles create a solution to meet both of these needs look at it there verse 3 therefore brothers because of of these two needs Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. So, first, they give the church the responsibility. They give the church the responsibility. They say to the full number of the disciples, pick out from among you seven men, of good repute. So they say, it's your responsibility, church, to choose men of good reputation. Good reputation. This implies that these men were known in the body. Their reputation was known by all. Now, now this, this, this is a nice point to make. They are known by everybody, but have you thought about the way that requires people to live? 
Have you ever thought about the way it requires or what's required of us if we're to know each other in this type of way? What is your reputation? Well, you have an outward reputation, but then you have another reputation that those who really know you see. These men were known. These men had their lives on display for all to see, and they were men of good reputation. These were men who were filled with the Spirit. They were spiritual men. Now, I will, I will take the opportunity here to say this. One of the issues that we see come up with deacons, or those who are appointed to serve in particular capacities in the church, is that often we choose men who are handy or who are able in some particular area, but they're not spiritual. These men were men of good reputation. These men were spiritual men filled with the Spirit. It's not about how many tools they can use skillfully or how big their shop is. Sorry, Kevin, I know you have a big shop, and I love that shop, but that doesn't qualify you to be a deacon. It's not about how proficient they are with spreadsheets. It's not about some skill that they have or or that they're good at accounting. This isn't what qualifies them to be a deacon. No, they have to be of good reputation, both inside and outside. They, They have to be full of the Spirit. That that means they're not controlled by the flesh. They're not controlled by various passions. They're controlled by the Spirit. They're filled with the Spirit and wisdom. A man who is filled, controlled by the Spirit will grow in wisdom, not worldly wisdom. But spiritual wisdom. Do you remember the description given for spiritual wisdom in James chapter 3? James chapter 3, which is in the context of the passage we read just a minute ago in our liturgy. James 4, where, where do divisions and fights come among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? Well, in James chapter 3, right before that, listen to what it says about heavenly wisdom. Verse 13, who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. 
those who are chosen to serve here in Acts chapter 6, they are men who live out that description in James chapter 3. They're godly men. Men who have wisdom from above. Men who are not full of selfish ambition. For that will just stir up more strife. It's true that you've all heard the horror stories of how deacons have taken over the church, right? I grew up in a Baptist background in a lot of Baptist churches. Here's what, here's what they have. This is a little bit of a history lesson for you. A lot of Baptist churches in the 20th century were formed around one pastor, an autocratic leadership model where you have one pastor who is the man of God. And he speaks the word of God and everyone must listen to him. And then around him you have deacons. Deacons who uh, are the leaders or the decision makers of the church. Okay? And the deacons are the ones who hold the keys. They're the ones who, they're the ones who decide all of the important things for the church. And, and you have this war that goes on. In many Baptist churches, you have this war that goes on between the pastor, the man of God, and the deacons, and they go back and forth for control over the church, back and forth. And some of you are nodding your head because you've seen that, right? You've seen that actually happen and lived that. But that's not the biblical model at all. And so what's happened over the last 30 years or so, this is that history lesson, over the last 30 years or so, there has been an emphasis, and rightly so, on raising up godly elders. Not just one pastor who's going to sit on top of everything, but a plurality of elders. And that emphasis on eldership has been good for the church, and has been healthy for the church. And so there are a group of men that are raised up in a church who are godly and who are, who are scripturally sound, able to instruct in sound doctrine and to refute those or, or to rebuke those who contradict sound doctrine, Titus 1 tells us. And this is good, but here's what's happened. Here's what's happened. I hope you're listening. In that emphasis, in that good and right and healthy emphasis on eldership and the plurality of elders, you know what's happened? The role of deacon has been lost. The role of deacon has gone away. Because we don't want that bad form of deaconate that we've all seen who rival the authority or rival the leadership of the pastor elder. And so we don't really know what to do with them. We're just kind of just kind of let them fade away to the background. That's not healthy either. What Acts 6 is giving us here is a wonderful complementarity. The word must be exalted. The word ministry must be preserved. And if that is going to happen, we must have deacons, servants who are appointed to take leadership of practical and physical and logistical and administrative needs if the church is going to thrive and be healthy. And these men, they can't just be handy men. They can't just be able men in whatever skill. They must be godly men, spiritual men, wise men. And the fact that the apostles appoint these type of men to serving tables 
It tells you what they think about this ministry of serving tables. Remember I said ago, a minute ago, that we think of serving tables as the lowest? That's not how the apostles viewed it. They thought this was of utmost importance, and that's why they gave their best to it. Alexander Strzok says, they chose their best to serve the least because they understood the threat of disunity and disharmony and what could happen to the preaching of the word. And the apostles recommit themselves to prayer and serving in the word. Do you see that word ministry when it says that they said we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word? You see that? That word ministry is connected to the same word we're getting here for deacons, for serving they will deacon tables and we will devote ourselves to the deaconing of the word. The ministry, the serving of the word. Now, elders are not apostles. But elders have taken this role of handling the word. Pastors and elders. And the pastors and elders, they serve by leading in the word. The deacons, they lead by serving, by serving tables. Now, you'll see at the very top of your page there, I, I put a main idea on the very, very front of your page. Main idea. Go to that, and I want to give you the main idea. Here's the point for all of us to be instructed in. And I, 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 put this, I put this on a piece of paper because I want you to write this in because I want you to keep this piece of paper and I want you to remind yourself of what deacons are and why deacons are important, okay? That's why I put it on a piece of paper so you don't forget this. The appointment of deacons promotes the ministry of the word. The, appointments, the appointment of deacons promotes the ministry of the word and protects the unity of the church. It promotes the ministry of the word and protects the unity of the church. Now all of us, all of us should be servants. Correct? All of us should be. All of us should be serving. This is our attitude of service that we are to have. Jesus says in Matthew 10. He says, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you, is what he says. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave to all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served. Listen to that. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The model we have for service is Jesus himself. Last week, we talked about looking unto Jesus, the author, the champion, the trailblazer of our faith. 
and its perfecter. What does this passage, Acts chapter 6, have to do with looking unto Jesus? Friend, if you and I are going to serve in the church with effectiveness and fruitfulness, we must keep our eyes on Jesus. He, He, the Son of Man, even the Son of Man, came not to be served. Think about that statement for a moment. Who is the Son of Man? He is the King of Heaven. He is the King, God's appointed King, who will rule over this earth. The Son of Man. He came not to be served, but to serve and to give His life a ransom for many. This morning, I want you to understand this reality You and I have been served by the King of heaven. You and I have been served by Jesus who took our sin for us and took our death in our place and laid his life down as a ransom for those who are undeserving and unlovely. Jesus has served us in a way greater than anyone has ever served. And we are to live with our eyes on Him, serving, living in light of His example, serving one another. This attitude of service, this attitude of service will protect the unity of the church and will serve to promote the preaching and the teaching of the good news of Jesus as Lord and Christ. And that's what you see. You see that this serious threat is put to bed by the solution, the spirit-filled solution of the deaconate and that the church is strengthened. Look at what happens in Acts chapter 6, verse 5 through 7. And what they said, that is what the apostles, their plan, what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith, of the Holy Spirit, Philip, Procurus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles and they prayed and laid their hands on them. Did you, do you read and see what happened right there? They chose seven men of good reputation, full of the Spirit and wisdom. But who did they choose them from? These men that they chose, they were all Hellenists. They were all Hellenists. They were not Hebrew speaking. They were Hellenists. So they they said, you're right, apostles, you're right, we'll do that. We'll, We'll choose men to make sure that our widows are not neglected. And they chose men from the group that was being neglected. What unity. What supernatural unity here displayed in this early church. And what was the result? It resolves in supernatural unity, and the result is that the preaching increases in effectiveness. That's what you see in verse 7. The word of God continued to increase And the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. But not only that, 
connected to what I said at the very beginning. The opposition. Many of the opposition. Do you see it there? And a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. They were the group that had been opposing the apostles and the preaching of the word. But now many of them become obedient to the faith. The church is strengthened by the ministry of the deacons. The joy of verse 7, the power and effectiveness of verse 7 here was accomplished through the service, through the organization of the deacons. What a testimony to the importance of this role in the church. Now, a few implications for us. A few implications, and then I want to make it very practical for us at Trinity Church. This is a little bit different of a Sunday morning because I'm trying for us to grow in our understanding and why we're going to be doing some things the way we're doing them. But implications here. Number one, I want you to see this. Those chosen to be deacons, and I'm stealing this, those chosen to be deacons are shock absorbers and problem solvers. This is from Matthew Smether's book on deacons, how they serve and strengthen the church. Deacons are shock absorbers. You know what shocks are, right? And you know what, you know what shocks are are when they go bad, when you go down a road, right? You're, you're going down a road and your shocks aren't working well and you feel every single bump that goes on the road. Most of us have cars like that. When, when the shocks are actually working, okay, there's a lot of potholes in, in Spokane. When you're going down the road, those shocks serve to help, right? As you're going down the road to absorb the bump, to absorb the difficulty in the road. And that's what deacons are, are to do. Paul Smith asked me for a definition for, of deacons, of the office and the role of deacons. Uh, well, here you have it, Paul. They're shock absorbers. Now, on a level, all of us should be that way. Okay? All of us should seek right, to absorb the problem and not create more of a problem. But those chosen to be deacons, these are spiritual men. These are spiritual people. These are people filled with the Spirit and with wisdom who serve to absorb the shock, the bumps in the road. And as we live together, people, there will be bumps in the road. There always are when you get people together and the deacons are there to absorb that shock. And they're problem solvers. Deacons are problem solvers. This is why they appointed. There was a problem. They could not. It's not right for us to leave the ministry of the word to serve tables. We have a problem that has to be met. Here are seven men that will solve the problem. That's what they do. They're problem solvers, shock absorbers and problem solvers. Now, now let me ask this question. Are, are you the type of person that seeks to solve the problem? Or are you the type of person that just likes to see problems? A lot of us are good at seeing problems. A lot of us are good at recognizing problems, but we're not so good at actually solving the problem. And this is what distinguishes those who might be good candidates for deacons. They absorb the shock, and they seek to solve the issues. 
And they do so because, you know why they do so? First and foremost, because they have been served by the king of heaven. And they want to serve others in the way that he has served them. And they want to promote the word ministry of the church. That is the high priority for the deacon. The deacon wants to see the ministry of the word succeed. So he knows that what I've got to do is I've got to help smooth out the road for us as a body, as a people. I've got to absorb some of this shock. I've got to solve these problems so that we can continue going in unity. We want to protect the unity of the church. So deacons are unity protectors. Not just seeing problems, but solving problems. So deacon is a leadership role. This might be a little bit of a change for you in the way you've thought about it. Deacon is a leadership role. It is not just a behind-the-scenes role. Get, get that, people. It is a leadership role. Everybody in this early church knew who the deacons were who had been appointed for this task. And they looked to them to lead. They looked to them to lead and to figure out the problems and to administrate the situation. That's what deacons are. They're leaders. So the elders serve the church by leading in the word and the deacons lead by serving tables. And without the role of deacon, without the role of those who are shock absorbers and problem solvers, without that role in the church, the ministry of the word will suffer. So applicationally for us, applicationally for us at Trinity, what does this mean practically for us? Okay. Well, as I've said already, we are all called to have this attitude of service. We are all called to have an attitude as Jesus himself had. We are all called to put on Christ in this way. And truthfully, the vast amount of serving does not happen formally, does not happen in any recognized way. I have been so encouraged. Can I tell you that? I've been so encouraged by just the last few weeks as so much sickness has gone around, as I've watched and I've heard about people serving each other, taking meals to one another, doing other people's laundry for them, taking care of their kids, cleaning their houses. These ways are serving each other, right? We're laying down ourselves for each other. But there's also an attitude of service needed in the gathering, let me give you a real example of that. Did you know that, it, it, this is an easy example, music, music. Music is one of these areas where disunity in the church creeps up. For every church that's ever existed, music becomes an issue. Did you know that? And here's the deal. We all have preferences. We all have opinions. We have very strong likes and dislikes and things that we think should happen in a gathering. And when we come, we hear music and it's like, that didn't really, that didn't really do it for me today. Or I don't really think that's what we need to be doing as a, as a music ministry. Man, strong opinions. And some people like this and some people like that, we have strong preferences. And what happens? This creates disunity. What if we took our attitude of service and we applied it to something like music? And we said, you know what? This may not be my preference. This may not be what I like, but I'm going to come and I'm going to serve others 
in laying down my own preferences and singing to the glory of God to encourage others. That's a, that's a very practical way that our attitude of service has an impact on us every single week. Is that the attitude that you have or that you're seeking to put on? Or are you looking to be served? And I'm not trying to pick on anybody or thinking of anybody particularly. I'm really working hard not to do that. Because I, I, I want you to all understand that this is a difficulty for me as well. I come to a gathering so often wanting to be served. Wanting to be served instead of thinking about how I can serve. You want to know how that happens for me? When I preach, when I, when I put together a message or whatever and I preach, I want you to like it. And I want you to tell me I did a good job. And I want you to appreciate all the work I put in there. And I want you to pay attention. But see what I'm doing? I'm, I'm, I'm thinking about myself instead of you, instead of serving you. It just creeps in so quickly. Are we seeking to be served or are we serving one another? Do we possess the hope of real unity? Do we possess real hope that we can have true unity? If we're in Christ and we are all seeking to serve one another, we should have every reason to hope for unity, true unity, supernatural unity here in our body. And this leads us then to identifying those in our midst who have exemplified service informally in the small ways that we can then acknowledge and appoint in our body to help us to administrate, to solve problems, to facilitate ministry. Elders lead by the word. Deacons serve tables facilitating that ministry and then the people of God, the church. We do that work of the ministry and that's the way a church should look. We have an opportunity tonight to appoint three men to the office of deacon. And I want you to understand what's going to happen with those men. These men are spiritually tested men. These men have a reputation, a good reputation. These men are filled with the Spirit and with wisdom and always growing. These men have demonstrated a servant's heart, the attitude of Christ. And what we're asking them to do is lead. We're not asking them to just build something or do spreadsheets. We're asking them to lead in particular ways. And the elders then, the elders, very practically, we're going to be meeting with them. We have our first meeting, January 18th, this next Wednesday, where the elders and the deacons are going to meet together. And we're going to talk about this vision of elders and deacons working hand in hand together for the good of the body, for the unity of the body. And we're looking forward to that. I would just ask you to pray for the church as we enter into this relationship between elders and deacons, pray for harmony, pray for unity, and pray for all of us to have this spirit, the spirit of Christ, the Son of Man, who came not to be served, 
but to serve, to give his life a ransom for many. Father, we thank you for the fact that you have given your best. You have given your only begotten, your one and only son. You have given all that you could give for our sake. Undeserving and unlovely, sinful, rejecting you. And he has laid his life down for us. And it is a privilege to be called his people. It is a privilege to be able to serve as he has served. It is a privilege to be able to glorify him and how we serve one another. And we do pray for the leaders in this church, the elders and the deacons. We pray that there would be real complementarity. We pray that you would kill selfish ambition, self-centered agendas, selfish pride, that you would kill it in us and that we would strive to put it away, put it off of us, and put on Christ. And I pray for each member here this morning that we would take this opportunity, this challenge this morning to examine our own hearts. Are we complaining people? Are we people who are always seeing problems? Are we people who just want to complain? Or are we wanting to see the ministry of the word promoted and preserved and the unity of the church protected. I pray that if there are any here who do not know you and are living apart from you, the God who made them, I pray that you would convict them of their need for a Savior, of their sin against you, and that you would show them that you have provided for them all that they need for salvation in your son Jesus. We pray for this in your name. Amen.